Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Liebeter. Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SER, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. I was talking to a lady for one of the stories we're doing on the show today, Ellen, and I found out something kind of hilarious and really weird at the same time about koalas. Uh, Can you guess? (laughs) Is it the way they always seem drunk? Like whenever you see a koala, it kind of looks like it's about to fall out of the tree. No, it's not that. And you know why that is? It's because of the it's the leaves that they eat, oh. the eucalyptus leaves. Apparently, they have this toxin in them. And when the koala eats it, like every single day, <laughs> all day, it has to break down in their stomach. And that's meant to be this really intense process. So they're not really drunk, although they kind of seem like they're drunk. It's, it's just the leaves. But that's not what I was <laughs> talking about. This is something else. It's so much better than that. Well, tell me what it is. You know what? No. I, it's so great. I'm going to wait until... You're going to have to wait it out and we'll get to Ooh. that one a bit later. I hate suspense. But before we get to the koalas, we've got something that could be quite upsetting if you're an animal lover. Uh, and a lot of what you're about to hear next really kind of churned my insides. It's World Environment Day today, which was started by the UN to bring a certain environmental issue to the world's attention. The theme this year is Go Wild for Life, which is attempting to shine a light on the dark and depressing world of animal trafficking. But for us to start, we have to go right into the middle of where this is all happening. So where are we, Jake? We're in Hanoi, the capital of Vietnam, and what you can hear right now is the rush hour traffic. Pretty crazy, right? God, I remember I was there earlier this year. I was even in a cyclo accident. Oh, no. Bringing up bad memories. <laughs> Repressed memories. <laughs> um, well, at least I live to tell the tale. It's okay. Um, but why did you bring me back here? Well, Vietnam is one of the biggest hubs in the world when it comes to animal trafficking. And I should probably clarify first, when we're talking about trafficking, it doesn't just mean illegally moving animals from one country to another. It also refers to animal products that might be exported out of a country or imported into one. And for Vietnam, that's the case. There are a huge range of animal products being imported in from places like Africa, elsewhere around Asia, and sometimes even from the United States. Actually, now that you mentioned it, when I was in Vietnam, I actually saw heaps of bottled snakes everywhere. Literally selling snake oil. Yes, I'm not quite sure how legal they are, but try getting that through Australian customs. But a huge industry in Vietnam that isn't going unnoticed is the trafficking of rhino horns. I am Madeline Williamson, and I'm the head of office of Country Director for Traffic in Vietnam. Madelon is based in Hanoi in Vietnam for her work with traffic. We spoke to her via Skype, so if the audio gets a little shaky at times, we'll try and pick up the pieces so you can understand what she said. Hang on, you said Madeline works with traffic. You mean she works in animal trafficking? Traffic? Oh no, traffic is the organisation that Madeline works for in Hanoi, and a lot of what she does is work with governments and different actors in the space of animal trafficking. And like I was saying before, a lot of this is happening in Vietnam. Well, Vietnam is a large consumer country. It's also a large trafficking country, and the reason why that is is because the enforcement is relatively low. So the wildlife criminals see this as a very good country to move their commodities either you know, for use in Vietnam 
or to use for use in China and other neighbouring countries such as Thailand. Enforcement and regulation doesn't really do all it could in Vietnam because animal trafficking is a huge industry, $20 billion to be exact, and there's a lot of demand for these products like rhino horn. And one of the main reasons people want it is because it has supposed strong medicinal properties and can cure certain diseases. Like what? Only 6% of rhino horn users believe that it actually cures cancer. If you missed that, Madelon said some people believe rhino horn cures cancer. So it's only 6%. The other 94% and use it to um, relieve hangovers. Madeline also gave this example of where people might be planning a night out and then they're having a couple of drinks and they go, hey, why don't we have some rhino horn before we go out? That way tomorrow we won't have a hangover. Why don't they just pop a painkiller like everyone else? Or drink water! Yeah, well, apparently it's better than a painkiller and a lot of people are saying... That say, oh, I want to go back to nature. I don't want to use Western medicine because Western medicine aren't good for me. As well as some other believed benefits... Um, and use it to increase sexual performance. And that's, again, um, you know, a lot of Vietnamese men have mistresses. Just repeating that again, Madeline said there are a lot of Vietnamese men who have mistresses. (laughs) And again, that is um, show to society, to their peers, to their networks, how wealthy and um, how well-off they are. And that's the next big part of this. It's a status thing. Like, if you have a rhino horn, you're top shit? Yeah, well, yeah, essentially, it's kind of a symbol of wealth or prosperity that you're able to afford rhino horn or that you use rhino horn. Uh, you have to be somebody important. That's ridiculous. Yeah, but not everyone is after it. It's normally a certain group of people. It's only a small percentage, but if you think there's 92 million people in Vietnam, uh, you know, a small percentage add up to a lot of people, and they're very wealthy And there are a lot of wealthy people in Vietnam, according to Madelon. Amongst those, um, of those people that consume rhino horn, it's about 30% um, are government officials. Corrupt government officials. Never heard of that before. (laughs) Yeah, and in my opinion, I think that's the scary part. Because if we go back to what I said at the beginning... All of that about enforcement and regulation, a lot of it comes down. Well, it comes down to the Vietnamese government because rhino horn is an industry for them. And although it's not something every official wants, a lot of them do want it for themselves as well. Um, Vietnam isn't quite yet ready, <laughs> isn't you know ready yet to take on um, full responsibility, even though they've just strengthened the penal code which will come into force the 1st of July, so next month, which will really see the um, sanction being much more increased. So they're slowly cracking down on it. Well, yeah, but very slowly. But actually getting to the sanctions and getting people convicted in Vietnam is really, really hard. We know that a lot of government officials um, are involved. There's a lot of corruption in Vietnam, which doesn't help. And you can imagine why that is. There's a government official who wants rhino horn for their own personal reasons and doesn't want to get in trouble for owning it. (laughs) Of course. What government official wouldn't want to get in trouble for doing something illegal? Well, it isn't exactly illegal in Vietnam. It allows consumption 
uh, and selling and ownership up to 50 grams of vinylhorn. Again, just to repeat that in case you couldn't hear, the new legislated penal code that will come into effect next month will allow people to own up to 50 grams of rhino horn. And up to two kilos of ivory. And two kilograms of ivory. Two kilos? Gee whiz. And the thing is with the penal code, it's a great thing that it's being updated, but it has to be sanctioned and regulated in hand with other laws. However, in Vietnam, there are 19 laws that govern environmental protection, and they're all implemented by different agencies. So it's a process of getting them all together, getting them all to talk, and then figure out what's a suitable amount of rhino horn that people can own, let alone have it at all. Why don't they just make it a blanket rule, make it all illegal? Well, then they can't monitor it. In, in the eyes of the Vietnamese government, it'll be, we know how much you can have, you can't exceed this, but then we can also have our own. Kind of reminds me of cold and flu tablets over here. You know, you can go into a pharmacy and buy them when you need them, but we'll keep a record of how much you buy when you do because, you know, they can be made into narcotics. Yeah, like keeping tabs on it. But what about when people go over those limits? Well, there's another problem. We've got some numbers from last year where um, it's about a tenth of a percent of confiscations of rhino horn and ivory end up in actually convictions. And that's just because the system um, completely breaks down as soon as there is a confiscation. That's crazy. Less than 1%. You literally can't get any lower than I that. Know. And And then the system breaks down when they try and convict someone. The Vietnamese government really hides from their own mistakes rather than owning up to, you know, faults in society. They say, oh, no, that's, that's not that way. Your data isn't correct. There was at a press conference yesterday. We had the director of the judicial department we had the director of the customs anti-trafficking and laundering department and the secretary general uh, he was you know high high level government and they're sort of all saying yeah yeah vietnam is a trafficking country and yeah we do a little bit consumption but china is the real reason why this is happening and they all seem to have sort of been hiding around, you know, we we are not a fault that it's China. And we have done these confiscations. But then we ask, okay, so how many people are convicted? Another area that is falling short is awareness campaigns. Madelon said there are a number of campaigns out there to say, care for the environment, don't use rhino horn. Some even saying there's this really bad protein in the horns. Would you want to eat that? And that's great that there are campaigns out there to do that. But also the people who own rhino horn don't care. It's like saying to a smoker, don't smoke. They might know it's wrong, but they're still going to do it anyway. What does an effective campaign look like then? It's called a chi message. Having a message that evokes emotion, that generates a contact, that generates an emotion that uh, makes them question why they're doing this behavior and then also gives them the tools to change the behavior. We make sure that the chi message, and the chi means strength comes from within, you don't need another external product to become more famous. You can do this yourself, your own mind, your own brain, your own body is, is strong enough, has chi enough to accomplish whatever you want. And it's delivered to the businessmen because they are the most prolific consumers. 
Have these messages worked before? Were they effective in getting people to stop using rhino horn? Well, yeah, there's been a reduction in even the past year and a half, Madeline says, on the number of people who use it, collect it, whatever. But it's one of those things where you can only go so far to steer people off it. And if they don't? This species will be wiped out. And there's another aspect to this, and that is the worry that these animals are being commercially bred. So they say we should farm these endangered species because um, the traditional medicine um, demands the use of these species. And it's here where Vietnam is falling behind. China has very strong regulations and actually convicts people and actually sentence, you know, actually one of the sanctions is, is death. They would like to do these farming, um, such as bears. So in Vietnam, uh, they used to do bear ball or bear ball farming. So they would have bear farms, um, Asian black bear, where they would milk their bears. And if then if the bear was too old, they would chop off their paws and, you know, maybe get some other bits, teeth and claws from that animal and would sell that into the market as well. And these farms are being phased out at the moment. But we know that there's lots of people that have their own little backyard farms. And we also know that Vietnamese people want wild products. So now um, I was just in uh, on holidays in, in the US and went to visit friends in, in Canada. And they said that there was a black bear where the bile, the bile was taken out and the paws were being chopped off. And that's exactly what happens with the Asian black bear here in Vietnam. That could be because, you know, there's an Asian person in in BC or somewhere in America that, that desires that product, or um, they could be transported to the, to Vietnam or China, which is very worrying. Oh my God, that makes me so sad. I know. And what's even sadder is that it's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. If it's still essentially legalized, it's going to happen still. If people want something, they have means to get it, even if it's illegal, because they'll bypass the law. So who's going to do something about it? And it's funny when you talk to businessmen or to youth, for example, and you ask them, who do you think is responsible to make this change? So what do you think you can do? They all, their first instinct is to say, well, no, government needs to make this change. Government needs to do this. And so, but you're a people. You know, you, there is power in, in the people. And that really makes them think because they're not used to that being a socialist people. Government also really needs to start enforcing the law. They need to close all the loopholes. They need to start convicting people with serious crimes. They need to start developing cases with forensic evidence. It's a third place after drug trafficking, money laundering, and then it comes wildlife trade. It's a serious crime, and people need to start seeing it as a serious crime. The whole world needs to start seeing it as a serious crime. Madeline Williamson from Traffic in Vietnam. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER 107.3.
All right, Jake, I've waited long enough. I have to hear why you're so excited about these damn koalas. I want one more guess before I actually tell you what oh it my is. God, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I don't know anything else about koalas. The drunk thing is all I've got. Well, if there's one thing that you should know about them, you'll love this. Ah, so most people might not know that female koalas actually have two internal vaginas. Uh, three, sorry, and males have a, a forked penis. A forked penis? Why? So sometimes it says they have two penises, but really it's a forked penis. Oh, and so so how do how is the whole, um, I guess, sexual process then different from other animals? Uh, it's still similar. They still have to have sex, and there's still a lot of contact, but their external organs look a little bit different from us. So most of it's internal. You know, so they still have a cloaca. They still have to sort of you know have sexual contact to fertilize, but it, internally it looks very different. Right. And does it then function differently, I guess, for female koalas than birthing and all that? Well, of course, because they deliver their young into their pouch. Mm. So there's obviously, yeah, differences in, in compared to a human, for example, how we classically think about it. Yes. <laughs> so starting off on this note, I guess that immediately <laughs> will tie into this idea of koalas and chlamydia. So that is a lot of what your research looks into. What? How do you even begin to approach this realm? So yeah, so it, it's it's obviously a sexually transmitted infection, um, but it also affects the ocular tissue, so the eye of the koalas. It's probably transmitted by contact as well, and you know, sort of by fecal oral contamination. So if they eat leaves that another koala is, has you know pooed on, then maybe it's transmitted that way as well. So so I guess we try not to think too much about the physics of the mechanism, but actually look at sick koalas externally so we can actually get access to where the chlamydia is affecting the koala externally from the eye and from the external genitals, the cloaca. How how common is chlamydia amongst koala populations? Unfortunately, it's actually really high. So in some populations in southeast Queensland, we can see really high prevalence rates if we sample and screen in the wild, and this is work done by my collaborators. Um, and it certainly seems to be that there's very few populations that are chlamydia-free in Australia. It It's really not a problem until the koalas get stressed. And then um, it's probably a low level of disease, but then it really becomes a severe problem when they're stressed. Those How so? So it seems that if the koala's already sick, they've been under a dog attack, there's nutritional deprivation or there's a new highway being built through and they're under some kind of habitat stress, then we see lots and lots more koalas presenting with chlamydial illness in those areas. And so we see the wet bottom, the ocular damage, all the symptoms of really sick koalas. And just to take a step back... What are some of the biggest ways that koalas, you, you mentioned a couple before, but what are some of the biggest ways that chlamydia affects a koala? So it presents really severely. It's a really horrible disease. So there's a number of ways that it presents. So ocular tissue is scarred. So the eye is really, really scarred and gunky and eventually they can be blind. And of course, that's then a life-threatening condition for a koala in the wild. They can't really survive if they're blind. And that looks a lot like trachoma in humans, which a different type of chlamydia causes in humans. And in the genital space, in the urogenital space, the infection can lead to sort of really severe cysts in the bladder, and that's what causes that wet bottom. So they get all cysty, and they don't, you know, so they use the function of the bladder, and so they have this kind of urine stain that's really smelly and really 
unpleasant. And obviously the koala's in a lot of pain. And so that's where their fur looks all wet, literally wet bottom fur. Um, but also what it does is it scars all throughout their reproductive tract. So their uterus, all of their kind of reproductive organs are all scarred and damaged. And so they lose fertility. So they're in a lot of pain. They're not able to do normal functions. You know, they're not controlling their urine, but also they're losing their fertility. So it's really severe. The loss of fertility is really hard to see. There's special ultrasounds where we can see the cysts all through the uterus and the scarring. Is it more common for female koalas to have chlamydia or male koalas, or is it kind of evenly spread? It appears to be evenly spread from the studies we've done so far. And it probably has a similar damaging effect in the male reproductive tract as well. It's harder to see those organs, but yeah. How is uh, the human chlamydia disease different than from the koala chlamydia? (laughs) So you see lots of jokes about, you know, the One Direction boys cuddling a koala and maybe they have (laughs) chlamydia now, for example. I think we saw that in the media a few years ago. So it's a different type of chlamydia. So the strain or the species is a different chlamydia. But in fact, the way the disease presents is very similar and probably the way that it transmits is also very similar. So we know that the genital chlamydia that humans get is sexually transmitted um, by that direct sexual contact and the disease, the way it presents and the scarring in the tissue is very, very similar. The ocular chlamydia, which is a different type of chlamydia that humans get that causes blindness if we don't treat it, that also presents by sort of direct contact, you know, by a mum in a a developing village, a mum might wipe the eyes of all of her kids to clean them with the same cloth and then that transmits the chlamydia between those kids' eyes or flies from latrines um, being sp- spreading around the village and landing on everyone's eyes and transmitting it. So the, the transmission mechanisms and the way the disease looks is very similar, but luckily they're two different types of chlamydia. So don't stop cuddling koalas, guys. <laughs> By nature, are koalas quite, like, quite sexual? <laughs> <laughs> so so I I don't study their behavior in the wild I mainly work in the lab but my understanding is that they are the males are quite defendant they have they actually roam quite a bit so we we imagine them as these animals that just live in one tree forever but they actually have quite a large territory and they actually interact a lot and they do have a structure in the way that their wildlife that they live their lives and and yeah they are they do have sex they have to have babies so they have to have sex How about koala populations in captivity, if they're then catered for or looked after, but then also within the confines of perhaps being in a zoo? Is chlamydia still present for these koalas? So most of those koalas are chlamydia-free. They're treated. Okay, so if they come in from the wild with disease, we can treat them at the moment to cure that disease. Or populations that are bred and maintained are generally chlamydia-free. And so how do you then, what sort of treatments are available for more wild koalas or ones who still, or ones who have chlamydia? So at the moment, there's one primarily main way that we treat it. It's a special, specially formulated drug that we use. It's an antibiotic, much like what we use on humans, but we have it formulated in a very special way. That means we can inject the drug into the koala muscle. Uh, That has to be done every day for 45 days. So the koala comes in from the wild with the disease. The zoo and wildlife hospital manage that koala's disease. They manage the symptoms. They inject the drug daily for 45 days and look for clearance of the symptoms. And then the koala is re-released into its home habitat as so long as it recovers. That drug is the only antibiotic that works. There's a lot of reasons for that. So... The koala has a really special way of eating. As you know, they eat gum leaves. Now, to eat those gum leaves in their gut, they have really, really special family of microorganisms or ecology of microorganisms that help them to degrade 
those gum leaves. So that's why we can't orally give them antibiotics because those antibiotics that we would take orally kill those organisms and then they can't eat and they're at danger of starving to death. And in fact, that does happen if we give them the wrong antibiotics orally. The drug that we use that I mentioned that we inject is now running out of supply. There's only one company that makes it and they're under a lot of pressure in terms of their manufacture sites. And so the supply is limited and tenuous and may in fact stop within a number of years. So we're one of the key issues facing the koala, along with habitat destruction and wild dogs, is chlamydia and how do we treat it if they come in with the disease? And that's going to be a real threat in the coming future years. So if they continue or if they discontinue this treatment for these koalas or if it's getting lower and lower in terms of its supply, what other alternatives are there or how else could you then devise a, a medicine so it would work for the koalas and then wouldn't not work when they ingest it? So that's exactly the work that we're trying to do. So we urgently need to develop a new medicine and we're working on an injectable form of a drug that's specific to chlamydia. And so the drug that we're working on doesn't kill other organisms that we've tested so far and it will still be injected so it still won't go through the gut but also it doesn't appear to kill a whole range of organisms. It seems to be chlamydia-specific. So that kind of strategy, a chlamydia-specific therapy, preferably one that we don't have to do for every 45 days, um, is what we're, we're working on. Um, and I read an article while I was searching for this story, and the headline was why we should be culling our koala, like koalas with chlamydia. How how do you feel about that? Yeah, so that that particular article was on the back of a, a really interesting research study that that suggests, and it comes back to your questions about sexual transmission. So. The premise of that particular study was if you have a male koala, for example, who has chlamydia and he's transmitting it to a lot of women in his women, <laughs> a lot of female koalas in his environment, then maybe the best thing is actually to cull him and stop that transmission, for example. So so that was really based on mathematical modeling of how the disease spreads really quickly and easily in those stressed or just local habitats and environments of groups of koalas. Um, and in some ways... That is an extreme and really distressing mechanism, but it would stop the rest of the koalas getting chlamydia and potentially dying or losing their fertility. Uh, so it's a it's a numbers game, and it's if you look at it just as numbers and not as these beautiful creatures, then you could see how you could come up with that conclusion. But of course, it's not acceptable to most of us to think that we would kill any koala because they have chlamydia. But we, but the other thing to to note is that sometimes they're so diseased that they're they're euthanized. So. Already that's the case, but certainly that article was based on reducing the transmission by taking out those highly infected animals that might be spreading it through a lot of the habitat. Personally, I'm not going to advocate for that solution. It might mathematically work, but it's it's too confronting to think about doing that. I think let's advocate for treatment, and ultimately another group is working on a vaccine, and of course ideally a vaccine that we can administer in the future. Maybe some time off, but that's another solution. But we're all, always going to need to treat because we're not going to vaccinate every wild koala very easily. And also think of solutions in terms of de-stressing environments for koalas. Absolutely. Habitat protection, less wild dogs out there in the environment that are attacking them. If we're going to build roads through the middle of a habitat, we need to have safe passages for them. We need to, we need to really innovate what we're doing and think about our everyday impact on the environment, each of us individually as well as policy and government level decisions. Okay. Why are you in this line of work? Why are you passionate about koalas? Uh, that's a really interesting question. So I actually work on human chlamydia as well. And, and this is one of those funny things that happen in research where we had a, 
um, a program of research on humans. We had this particular compound that we were testing on human isolates. And at the same time, the, our colleagues in the koala chlamydia field were telling us about this distressing shortage of this drug and the real threat and the need for a new antibiotic. And so we thought, well, actually, there's a more urgent need for new drugs for koala chlamydia than there is for human chlamydia. We have good drugs for human chlamydia right now. And so we thought, let's give it a go. And so it was kind of one of those sidesteps that you do that has led into this amazing, really important research opportunity and project for the koalas. Willa Houston, Senior Lecturer from the University of Technology, Sydney. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER. For more information about what you've heard today, head along to our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. You can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Levader. See you next week.